an American student was studying at uh, American University in Cairo. And he's coming home one night after classes, and there is this group of youth, Egyptian youth, that start harassing him. Now, this is 2003. This is, you know, spring of 2003 during shock and awe. The, the uh, sentiment about Americans in that part of the world is, was pretty toxic at that time. In downtown Cairo, it's dark. And these youth start, you know, pushing this American kid around. And, uh, and then something breaks, and they just they start pummeling this kid. Well, uh, an intervarsity staff worker is coming along with uh, a British guy who's the pastor of the International Church there in Cairo. They see this happening, and they shout out, Hey! What are you guys doing? And so the youth who are beating on this guy look up, and one of them starts coming across the street at these guys, and they take off. <laughs> They're like, no, thank you. This is nasty. They take off. Guy goes back, continues their work on this poor student. And not long after, this other guy, full-on beard, turban, comes down the street. It's like, hey, what are you guys doing? Same thing. Kid turns, starts to come after him. The guy keep, The guy runs after this kid who's coming after him, and the uh, gang of youth decide this is not worth it, and they take off. So this guy picks up this, the student's uh, unconscious by then, picks him up, and he thinks this kid looks American or Western at least. I'm not going to take him to the government clinic. I'm going to take him to the private uh, clinic. It's further. Carries him there, and uh, the you know admission um, health officials are like, we don't take people without uh, payment. The private clinic is they're really good in uh, lots of other countries, but I mean they cost. Um, so the guy gets out his credit card. He's like, whatever it costs, I want you to take care of this kid. Turns out the uh, guy who rescued him was Taliban. Um, now, some of you know because of the title of the sermon, uh, you caught on, okay, this is a retelling of the Good Samaritan. Um, and, uh, oh, Doug is just getting it. Who, who got that before I did the reveal that this was okay? So, um, Now, you know, the hero, depending on the audience, might have been um, one of the uh, insurrectionist Proud Boys, right? Or it might have been um, transgendered uh, Unitarian Universalists. It's this sort of stark contrast, this, this uh, division that is theological and that is um, often political or ethnic that gets held up as the hero in the Good Samaritan story. The, the pain, the offense of this story is not so much uh, that the guy with Taliban who did the right thing and the you know evangelicals who did the wrong thing or who fled. The 
offense of the story is that Jesus told it in answer to the question, what does a real Christian look like? That was the offense. Um, I mean, we can, we can dive into the story, and we will in a second, but one of the questions I want to ask is, does Jesus have permission to offend you? And most of us who are Christians say yes until he does offend us. <laughs> it's like, uh, you have permission to offend, not that offense, you know. You can offend me in those other ways. But there is a, a radical um, potential to become offended in listening to Jesus, in following Jesus. And he will rattle your theological foundations, your political foundations, uh, in ways that, that really offend. And so it's, it's usually his uh, offensive, inclusive grace or his um, absolute exclusionary claims as the only son of God. You know, either his exclusiveness or his inclusiveness, those are the things that are going to cross a line for you. And I'm inviting us to come and listen afresh to this story and to reflect anew about what it means to say yes and to follow Jesus. So we're in this series of looking at Luke 9 and 10. These are really, really powerful passages of calling people to hard followership and sending them out on, to do hard things. And listening to some hard things that he has to say. So let's take a closer look at the story. I'm going to read it from uh, Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Uh, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the expert in the law, he's like this seminary professor who's very well respected and has books. Uh, his, his best book is uh, How to Achieve Eternal Life, because like he knows the answer to that question. He's doing it to test Jesus, and he knows his stuff. And so um, his motivation may be wrong here, but he knows the answer and probably wants to show off. He wants to test Jesus, what the scripture says. Probably wants to show how much he knows. And, uh, you know, he thinks he's found this loophole. And, you know, he goes into quite depth in his book about, oh, yeah, but who's my neighbor? So when he asked Jesus, yeah, but who's my neighbor? I imagine the crowds looking on are like, ooh, good. You know, they're just so impressed with this. Oh, he's taking it to another level here. Like, uh, maybe he's even heard Jesus say, you know, the, the whole law and the prophets can be summed up in these two, two commands. So he knows probably what Jesus is going to say. Then he knows how he wants to hit him. And it was like, whoa, man, who is my neighbor? What a great question. This guy knows his stuff. And Jesus pulls out this story. And in it, I sense he is calling this expert in the law from right belief to right action. You know, I don't know that he's picking this guy apart theologically. He's got the theological chops. Um, we like to, you know, the, the official words are orthodoxy, right, belief, and orthopraxy, right, praxis, right, practice. This guy's got his orthodoxy down. But his orthopraxis uh, is left wanting. Like, he wants to justify himself. He knows what to believe but it hasn't reached his bones it hasn't come out and religious people uh like me and others tend to be pretty obsessed with what's the right thing to believe like what's the right box to check um is there a doctrinal statement that i can scrutinize and decide this doctrinal statement is in and this one is out like, that's this gravitational pull for religious people, like me. Um, but Jesus holds up this guy with wrong beliefs. Jesus knows this guy, that the Samaritan uh, worldview and theology has some serious flaws in it. I don't think Jesus is promoting Samaritanism. Like, uh, theologically, he knows they're off base, and yet he holds this guy up as, what's it look like to be living this quest for eternal life? Um, and Samaritans, oh my. I mean, the expert in the law can't even say it was the Samaritan in answer, right? He can't even say the word. Uh, the one who had mercy on him. Yeah, you mean Samaritan? Yeah. So the antagonism and animosity between Jews and Samaritans was real. And I believe it was theological. 
The, their differences were theological, their differences were political, and their differences were ethnic. Um, the series, The Chosen, has a number of episodes that take place in Sychar, so it's got the woman at the well. Uh, you know, they do some um, conflating of different stories in the Gospels to try to bring a scene to life. And so the scene they bring to life, and the one that I'm going to show, is what uh, Peter preached on uh, last week on Luke 9:54, the uh, exchange where James and John want to call down fire. Um, and so you, I, I play it to give sort of this visceral picture of what that animosity looked like. It's also, uh, you know, parenthetically, it's Jesus at his best, both rebuking and loving his disciples and discipling them hard and discipling them well and, and showing his love. So I just, I love the portrayal of Jesus here. But I show it as an example of the hatred that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Let's watch four minutes of The Chosen. You Jewish boys are far from home. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Shalom to you, too. Here's our traditional Jewish greeting for you. Don't lift a finger. That was a warning. Try it again and see what happens. Quiet, Big James. Shalom to you, too. You filthy dogs! I said quiet. Let us do something. What would that achieve? Defending your honor. They reviled and humiliated you. They deserve to have bolts of lightning rain down and incinerate them. Yes, fire from the heavens. Fire? You said we could do things like that. Say the word and it will happen. Why not? We knew we couldn't trust these people. We shouldn't have come here in the first place. They don't deserve you. Why do you think I had you work, Melek's field? What was I trying to teach you? To help? You think it was just to be more helpful? Or to be better farmers? It was to show you that what we are doing here will last for generations. What I told Fotina at the well, and what she then told so many others, it's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. Can you not see what's happening here? These people that you hate so much are believing in me without even seeing miracles. It's the message, the truth that we're giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region you don't like were mean to you. That they're not worthy? What, you're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. It's why I'm here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rabbi. As we gather others, I need you to help show the way. To be humble. We will. You wanted to use the power of God 
bring down fire to burn these people up? Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it that way. <laughs> you too. You're like a storm on the sea. Thunder exploding out of your chests at every turn. <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. James and John, the sons of thunder. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Today, it was not good. But strong passion can be a good thing when channeled for righteousness. I just may have to delay giving you that authority we discussed earlier or in smaller doses until you two calm down a bit. <laughs> well, the story of the Good Samaritan sounded to James and John. <laughs> like, really? So here's, so I, I told you, I believe there are political, ethnic, and theological differences. Let me explain that a little bit more so that you get a sense of why there's such animosity. And maybe find a little bit of yourself and someone else in this world that you feel similarly. So uh, politically, after Solomon, the, the nation of Israel split. There was actually a different country called uh, Samaria to the north and Judah to the south. And they had different kings. Samaria, by and large, had the worst kings. They all had bad kings. But, like, already there is this political division that is hundreds of years old. So imagine the Civil War going differently and there being two countries. There's the United States and there's the Confederate States. We have different presidents, like... You know, we still see some of the Civil War shadow today. Imagine if it had gone the other way and there were two countries. Centuries later, that kind of difference and hatred was reflected in this uh, Jew-Samaritan animosity. They, had, they grew up under different political systems, under different kings. Um, and you get this in Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to finish out um, looking at Luke 9 and 10. Next, we're going to look at Nehemiah, this rebuilding, because there, there may be something in that for us as we're thinking about the rebuilding of the physical church space and our influence in this neighborhood. But uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you get this Oh, the bad guys are the Samaritans that are hurling insults at them. Now, it's told from the Jewish perspective. And uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah have some pretty harsh postures toward those outsiders. That's some of this political difference that they're experiencing there. Theologically, so when the tribes separated... Uh, the northern tribes, the Samaritans, the Samaria Jews, went into exile at the hands of the Assyrians 
like, you know, over 100 years, 150 years before at the southern kingdom. And it was uh, the poor who stayed back and the educated who got taken away to Samaria. Um, and the, uh, the idea of worship for these two kingdoms differentiated. So Jerusalem and the temple were obviously the southern kingdom's version of what it means like to uh, for true worship. Mount Gerizim, you know, and uh, a place in Samaria. No, that's the right place that God wants us to worship. And there's some debate, and again, we, we kind of get the southern story of, oh yeah, they had nasty idols that they incorporated. But the Samaritans just took the Pentateuch, just the five books of the law. Well, later when the... Um, when the southern kingdom was taken to Babylon, a whole new uh, battery of scriptures came up. Then, then they are, you know, the, the story of the kings, the historical books. Those things come in while they're in exile. So they developed this canon of scripture in exile. Uh, the Samaritans didn't do that. They just had the Pentateuch. And so they felt like, first of all, they felt like the Jewish scriptures were corrupted like they they are off those scriptures are off we've got like the true pentateuch this is what moses gave and we don't diverge from this they had their own sense of what was theologically uh correct and pure and so they've got different scriptures uh and different thoughts about where the holy place to worship God is. Some of that comes out in the exchange of the uh, woman at the well. And a whole different kind of theology around Yahweh develops differently for the Jews than the Samaritans. So they've got theological differences. You can see maybe why I choose Islam as the theological, like the, a parallel to how we view what are the holy books. You know, we share some of the same, and yet we have these different... So I don't think it's a stretch to say the Good Samaritan is like a... Uh, a Samaritan is to a Jew as a Muslim is to a Christian. Um, so the, you can challenge me theologically on that, but it has that sort of uh, thread that nah, they have serious theological differences and then, of course, ethnic differences. The Jews at least believed that the Samaritans had done much more intermarriage with the conquering tribes. So any good empire, good in quotes, you know, is going to repopulate an area with colonists from their... They want to water down the ethnicity and the beliefs of the conquered people so they will feed in colonists from Assyria or Persia, and they'll intermix. And so uh, ethnic cleansing through uh, mixing of uh, families so that, you know, oh, maybe they'll start, you know, leaving this Jewish identity. And so the, the Jews believed that the ethnic mixing of the Samaritans also made them uh, less kosher, so to speak. So, what is it that Jesus is saying here? By holding up this politically different, 
theologically aberrant uh, and ethnically different person as the exemplar of what it means uh, to have eternal life, to live out eternal life. Um, you know, what's it mean? Well, love God. Everyone knows, okay, uh, heart, mind, strength. I, I, I know, I have an idea of what it means to love God. Neighbor, what's it mean to love your neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story. Is he saying that the priest and the Levite don't have eternal life and the Samaritan does? I'm not sure that that's the point here. I think we often rush to, oh, he's talking about who's in and who's out, and the Scripture's talking about who's going to heaven and who's not, and I'm not sure that Scripture's always addressing that question. So I don't necessarily think that he's saying, oh, the theologically aberrant guy, he has eternal life, and the priest and Levite don't. He may be, but I'm not sure that that's the point. I think he's trying to help the expert in the law understand that our beliefs show up in our actions. I don't know if you remember when Mark Gentry taught. He talked about uh, belief versus conviction and belief being this uh, ethereal um, theoretical thing and conviction being like it works itself out in your body. I think that's one of the things that Jesus is pressing this expert in the law. You know, I don't think it's like, oh, it's better to be, better to have good orthopraxy and screwed up orthodoxy. I think it's good to have both good orthodoxy and good orthopraxy. Like, let's shoot for both, being correct uh, and living correctly, living well. Um, you know, Jesus did not leave his disciples by and large with the creed. That's the apostles, the apostles' creed. Like, what Jesus left his disciples with was a meal. This is what I, I, I don't want you to repeat after me this phrase and teach others this phrase, and that will become our phrase. That will be our sort of knowing who's in and who's out. Get around a table and remember me. In community, with food, that's what he left us with. So uh, there may be a cautionary tale about obsession with the jots and tittles and specifics of uh, theology. But I don't think Jesus is bashing good theology necessarily. The, the expert in the law had good theology. And um, I'd hate to think that that doesn't matter. But it has to be lived out. Love is not primarily felt in the heart, it's lived in the hands. Like, think of love as a hand action, not a heart feeling. I think he's calling this expert in the law to um, <clears throat> move from his head to his hands. I'm you, great. He affirms. He he uh, appreciates the answer. That's the right answer. Good job. Good job, expert in the law. Oh, and then he takes this little twist. And Jesus does use a little bit of shock therapy in his approach, but sometimes it's needed to jolt us out of, his, uh, out of our ruts. 
I think Jesus loved the Pharisees. I think Jesus in many ways identifies with the Pharisees. Um, probably studied under or at least listened to a lot of Pharisees when he was young who had a lot of good things to say. And so his challenge to the Pharisees and his challenge here to the expert in the law stems from a desire to see them take the next step, not castigate them. That's why I love that clip. It's just got both that balance of solid rebuke. Like he is not letting them get away with anything. And yet he's got his arm around them at the same time. And he casts his vision for them. And it's like, this is, you guys are going to be something. So um, I think Jesus is addressing arrogance. Religious superiority, political superiority, ethnic superiority, like that is toxic to the kingdom of God. You can't hold a religious, political, or ethnically superior attitude and properly live out the kingdom of God. That's a problem. It's a problem for me. And it's a problem for some of you. We need to figure out how to live out this love of neighbor, especially when there are people that seem so different from us. You can't love God or neighbor without cost. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. It doesn't end there. It's got to come out of your body. It's got to cost you some strength. It's going to take your time. It's going to take effort. It's going to be like a cross that you're carrying, Jesus says sometimes. Not all the time. There's a lot of joy in following Jesus. But sometimes there is cross-bearing effort. So if following Jesus and being a Christian is more than praying a prayer or signing a statement, I think we need to look at the question of obedience. Sending the 12. Man, that was costly. Want, I don't want you to take a bunch of stuff. Will you do that? Can you do that? You've got authority to bring the kingdom in amazing ways. But you're not going to bring it if you are self-sufficient. So I'm going to call you to issue self-sufficiency. Do you, are you game for that? Do you want to do that? No, I don't want to do that. Yes, I will do that. You know, that kind of invitation is what it means beyond signing a doctrinal statement. It is going to be costly for you. There is joy and there is suffering in saying yes to Jesus. What are you willing to say yes to? Some of you may be on the early end Maybe you've never really said yes the first time to Jesus. That's hard. I appreciate that you're counting the cost. I think it's worth it, obviously. Um, believing that he is the promised Messiah, that this grand story of God and God's redemption of the planet through this um, messianic, promised 
man, Jesus, who physically lived in the first century, believing that and saying yes to following, to orienting your life around this figure, I implore you, say yes. If you haven't, and you don't understand everything, hey, it's okay. You don't have to have all the theological boxes ticked. That first yes to Jesus. There's something about you, and I want to say yes to it. And I don't know completely what it is, but there is something about you that I'm choosing to believe. You're the Son of God. I'm going to follow you. Yes, I know it's going to be hard, and I want to say yes to you. And I know immediately that that will mean reorienting some things that uh, are kind of messing with me right now. And saying no to things that I haven't been saying no to and saying yes to things that I haven't been saying yes to, I'm aware of that, and I'm still going to say yes, and I won't do it perfectly. That's the first yes. If you haven't given that first yes, would you do that? Many of us have given our first yes, but we need uh, this invitation to humility, especially those with whom we disagree. To think that you could be schooled in right living by someone with a different belief system. Like, man, that is a stretch. That's hard. Oh, here's a person living out a vision of serving others. And even like as I have spent some time in Egypt with Muslim friends, uh, there is a kind of devotion and dedication and seriousness about prayer and, you know, a whole bunch of things. It's like, I think I need to be schooled by these guys. Like, I think they're living out something really, really beautiful. Um, so that's the kind of humility and maturity. Oh, it doesn't mean that I embrace everything that they believe or whatever, but, like, there's something there to teach me. That's the invitation. And then take some risks. Think of the risks required for the Samaritan in the story or the Taliban in my story to love someone that they don't know and probably have a lot of disagreement with at a, at a high cost to themselves. That's the risk invitation for those who've given their first yes to Jesus now it's time to give some other yeses.